This is the best podcast. BEST stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Sokolich, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon. Welcome, 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 folks. We are excited to have this show with you tonight. And soon, in just a moment, Antonio will be joining us. I was just talking with him offline, and we were both super excited to dive into this book. It is a tremendous novel. If you haven't checked it out already, please do so. Uh, it's, of course, on Amazon. I'm looking at it now. There's over a thousand reviews, over four stars. And welcome, Antonio. How are you? Hey, good. Um, can you hear like street noise? My balcony door is open, or is the sound quality pretty good? It sounds tremendous. Okay, cool. And where? Hey, thanks. Where are you? Are you in Reno or are you some other place in the world? What's going on? Where are you? I'm in an undisclosed location, Adam. Um, <laughs> depends who's asking. If there's anyone from the California uh, Franchise Tax Board on this call, then I'm absolutely in Reno. Um, however, if there isn't, then as of this millisecond, I'm in San Francisco still. But I'm actually closing on a Reno house and have actually, if you follow me on Twitter, know that I've been bouncing between Reno and SF for the past couple months. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely a Nevada person, so to speak. Good, good. Well, Antonio, thank you so much for joining tonight. I'm super excited. I know we were touching touching base before this. Um, so folks in the audience, welcome. You know, this is part of a series with authors where I want to bring them in. And of course, you know, there's so many topics that have been discussed before. I want to deconstruct, uh, you know, you, Antonio, and everything that you've been through and put into this book and a bit more. Uh, but I'm really, really excited to dive in deep. So for folks in the audience, if you know Antonio, great. Get excited. If we have time for Q&A at the end, we'll try to get to that. But in the meantime, for the folks that don't or maybe new here, welcome. This is Antonio Garcia Martinez, the author of Chaos Monkey. It is a New York Times bestselling book. Um, I know that you've been in the tech and entrepreneur space for years, working as a product manager at Facebook, a CEO at AdGrok, you know, former quant analyst at Goldman Sachs. Your life is quite a story, my man. This is fantastic. Um, thanks. I, I've always been able to take, um, you know, mold the little grit of, um, of volatility into something that uh, would generate good art, I'd like to think so. But yes, I guess it's been somewhat interesting. Um, <laughs> so Antonio, you know, before we dive in deep, um, I would love to ask the question with all the tremendous stories that you have wrapped up into this book, at what point did you start considering turning it into a book was it early was it in the middle was it after all of this stuff and you were just like well, well tell us more about that well it's interesting i haven't gotten these like authorial questions in a very long time but i guess the book has been somewhat in the news recently because of this whole other backstory that i'm sure everyone here knows about so anyhow i'll answer the questions um that i used to answer four years ago again um so yeah i mean i you know i i always had a literary bent i you know little in fact my my first job, my first like W-2 was actually as a journalist. I actually was a, 
a newsroom intern at the Miami Herald and at the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel when I was in high school and early college. So the writing thing was always kind of there. It's maybe not as big as a surprise as you might think from someone coming out of tech. And then when I went through the whole Agrock, which was this dinky little nothing forgettable company, but it went through Y Combinator, which, as most people know, is this sort of accelerator program, became very famous. They backed companies like Airbnb and Dropbox and whatnot. Um, you know, as I went through that process, and then also when I landed at Facebook a year before the IPO in this very pivotal time in the in the company's history, and I just through happenstance, you know, happened to go through I, what I thought were very interesting moments in, in my career, which again, I, you know, in the end of the day, wasn't some super important thing, right? Like I, there's always a level of vanity and narcissism to writing anything like a memoir autobiography. But in my case, I didn't think that my, me or my experience was so unique. Rather, actually, it was just emblematic of a time that I thought was pivotal and interesting, which is, you know, what we're seeing now, which is, you know, our entire lives getting taken over by this little glass square that everyone's holding in their hands right now as they're listening to this, right? And I thought, you know, and this does, this is going to sound a little vainglorious, you know, a hundred years from now, we were going to ask the question, like, what was it like as we transitioned from, you know, an analog world to a digital one? And I thought, well, if I had at least a half decent chance at being, you know, you know, one of the books that maybe documented that I could do it. And, 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 and the, and the one reason why that ambition sounds is maybe less vainglorious than it sounds or less, less grandiose is that, you know, there's not a lot of competition, right? In, the, in that if you actually look in like how many insider accounts are there of startup world? I mean, now there's actually not, there's been a few in the past few years. So it's, but when I set out to write Chaos Monkeys, which was 2015, I mean, there was basically two and both of them had, you know, were super dated by the time I, I started writing Chaos Monkeys. So, you know, it was just, you know, my mother's a librarian. I was raised in, in a library. And to me, and, and again, this does sound a little bit like nerd elitism, like human life is only worthwhile if it ends up being a volume on a bookshelf, right? That to me is something amounting to something, right? And if it doesn't amount to that, then you're kind of wasting your time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I, I thought I'd, I'd try to fill a tiny little square on some bookshelf somewhere. So, you know, that's news. I did not realize you started as a journalist. Did you, you know, were you at any point hoping and wanting to write a book at some point? Or was this, again, just something that as you look back at the, at the moments and stories that you were uh, experiencing living in life, you were just like, wow, this is a tremendous story, you know? So was it a goal of yours or was it in hindsight? Um, I mean, in the same way that everyone bookish has that little fantasy in the back of their heads, like, when I was in grad school at Berkeley, among the, the various courses that I took at Berkeley, which is a magnificent university that also exercises almost no almost no con control over grad students, I actually took like the creative writing fiction workshop, like you know the MFA type course inside Berkeley while I was a grad student, and presumably working on a physics degree, which obviously I wasn't. But in any case, um, so you know the writing thing was always in the back of my head. In fact, one of the dedications to the book was to my high school girlfriend. This is really going back into AGM lore here. Um, um, who, like, I promised to dedicate the book, after, you know, for her. And um, there's a, the epigraph is in Spanish, Lo Prometido which promised is due, because I promised her, you know, whatever, 20 years ago, that I would dedicate the book to her. So clearly when I was 17 and lovelorn with my high school girlfriend, I clearly had thoughts about writing a book. So there is a proof theorem of some thoughts about books back then. Good, good, good. Well, still for folks in the audience, you know, again, this is part of an author series where we want to dive into two aspects of it. Of course, we want to hear the stories and, and, and talk about the stories within the book. But there's also an aspect of, of writing the book, the process of that in some ways. And so what was, you know, the part, the story that you enjoyed the most? So tell us the story 
And how did you go about accomplishing, you know, putting that into a chapter or two or however, however long it may be? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. One of the occupational hazards of writing a book is that everyone within like two hops of your social network that's thinking of writing a book, which is typically a lot of people, always like ask for the intro to talk to you about how to do it. <laughs> and it's always weird because usually the person doesn't actually have the fire to do it because like a book tends to take over your life or they do. It's even worse. And then you realize their lives are going to be ruined <laughs> at least for two years while they do the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, I think the challenge of writing a book versus writing a blog post, like everyone kind of writes these days, right? The, the thought of doing some long form narrative, something isn't that unusual as maybe it, it used to be. Um, you know, it's, it's maintaining a certain narrative arc that makes sense. Um, and it's also maintaining a consistent narrative tone, right? That's something that you don't typically get, right? When you just write one blockbuster, write one thing and another and another, and it's this almost schizophrenic experience in which you're a different person every essay you write. You can't, you sort of can't do that in a book, right? The writer finds it very jarring. And, you know, you, and then the other thing, of course, is that you have to take a very convoluted set of events. And here there is actually even a certain historian's task. Like I actually spent two weeks, um, you know, compiling all the texts and messages and Facebook messages and all, all the the digital sort of effluvia of our lives, I actually compiled that and put it in one enormous Evernote doc literally every day for like five years, along with every sort of major milestone that happens just to make sense out of it. Um, which, by the way, is a wonderful exercise. It, it convinced, like, I'll never believe the criminal justice system or any memoir ever again because human memory is so flawed, it's incredible, right? Like, you'll you remember, you know, meetings A, B, and C, and it turns out it was actually B, A, and then C didn't happen. And you actually you know, conflated D and E that you forgot about or something, right? Well, but in any case, there was... Anthony, yeah, actually, let me ask you a quick question on that note. I remember when you were writing about getting, uh, you were at Facebook, you were in a room with Cheryl, right, and some other folks. Um, yeah. And I noticed that in the moment you were, was it speaking per- verbatim or, but it was just so detailed. And I, I can't remember three days ago oh. in my life, you know? Oh, yeah, that was the... Um that was the, the pee filter story. Is that the one you're talking about with the cats on the? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's actually, there's many moments. I just really genuinely, yeah. you're, you have a very vivid memory and it was so well articulated. How did you go about doing that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously, you know, the book is like the highlight reel, like <laughs> obviously working at Facebook or at startups was not all the sort of the fun and convenient excitement that's in that book, right? Like a lot of it was boring, but the parts that did, that did stick out, stuck out on your head. And, you know, I, I I, I did do some journaling and some note-taking at the time. Although, I mean, again, I would be giving myself way too much credit to think that I was, like, preparing notes for the eventual Chaos Monkeys. Like, I, it didn't really go that far. But some things, like, the, the one anecdote I'm referring to, which for those who haven't read the book or whatever, there's a meeting there with, with Cheryl, and I, I was momentarily the product manager for the team that kind of polices ads, which now is this big deal, but at the time was this job that nobody wanted. And anyhow, somebody made a fool of themselves, like a total fool of themselves, in front of Cheryl in a very funny way. Um, so that's what the story is about. And it just stuck on my I remember telling that story to other people, so that's why I think it stuck in my memory, because it became kind of like the jokey lore that you would share, you know, next to the beer keg at, uh, you know, on the engineering floor or whatever. <laughs> well, Antonio, I mean, that's something that I really appreciate appreciated about the book is that it was so well articulated, but it was so clear. It felt like I was there in the room or, or in any situation. Um, and I think that that's very powerful when writing a book. So I, I'm giving you credit in that regards. It was very enjoyable. Let's, I know we're going to bounce around. We're going to go from, you know, aspects of writing the book to stories themselves. Let's jump into Facebook a little bit more, you know, and, and, and as you were 
becoming part of that team, what were you most excited about being part of early Facebook and the exciting growth? I should be careful because actually one of my colleagues from the time is actually in the audience. I can see him, Scott, and there's probably other Facebook people. <laughs> but in any case, um, uh, what was I excited about? Um, I mean, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing, right? Like in the book, right? Like, and it's funny because like the reviewers say that the narrator comes off as cocky, but that's kind of a persona. And ultimately the butt of all the jokes in the book is kind of me, right? So like I really was way in over my head coming in as a product manager for like a whole product area inside the ad scene. The ad scene at Facebook, just to set the scene, um, this is 2000, early 2011, there was maybe 30 people in the actual product and engineering org, like the people who actually built like the ads product. And there was five or six product areas with five or six product managers and one product lead. And like, that was it. Like there was literally so little hierarchy. I think I was either two or three hops from, from, from Zuck himself. And, you know, I just came in as the first targeting product manager and like day one is like, okay, come up with the product, the targeting roadmap. Like nobody's ever, we've never had any sort of coherent vision of how ads targeting should work. You, you should cook one up. And it was weird because, and again, like, it's not like I had some vast treasure trove of experience. I'd only worked in ad tech, like the one year of the startup and then a year and a half in this other mid-stage startup. Before that, I was like a Wall Street quan. I knew nothing about ads at all. And so it, it was very split. At Facebook at the time, only one other person at the time had actually, I mean, now, of course, it's very different, but at the time, only one person actually had a previous query history in ads. So it was very much like the one-eyed man is, you know, king in the, in the land of the blind type stuff. And so I, to the best that I could, I tried to come up with a targeting roadmap, made all sorts of mistakes, you know, and one of the things you learn, right, is that even Facebook, which I think is very good at many things, is a subject to its own internal lore as any other company. And we spent basically a year wasting our time doing bullshit products. And then the IPO rolled around and, you know, the revenue wasn't growing as fast as it should have been. And Cheryl basically said, you people need to come up with some ideas because <laughs> the IPO is happening and the revenue plots don't look as they should. And so that's when, you know, a lot of interesting ideas got experimented on, not, not just stuff I came up with, obviously. But wh one of the things I came up with was a lot of this better targeting that, like, you know, the thing where you, like, look at the internet or the web, right, and you see, like, a, what's called a retargeted ad for that product, like an Instagram or Facebook or whatever, basically my team built the first versions of that back when, like, that was, like, a quantum advance in the targeting of Facebook. Facebook ads product was so primitive at the time that doing anything like that at all was already, like, huge. And so I, I was involved with a lot of that um, in the... In the early so to me, that was the exciting part. And that's the other thing about people often ask, like, why do you work in a big company like Facebook? You know, even if you're a relatively like mid range person in, in a company like Facebook, which was still pretty dynamic at the time, I, from what I understand, it's very different now. But, you know, if you can be surprisingly impactful inside a lot of these you know, rapidly growing startups or like pre-IPO companies, right? Like, again, I, you know, I was not some super senior guy or anything, but I was responsible for this product and this revenue dash and whatever. And somebody in that role, right, has as much impact as the CEOs of other large companies in the outside world. It really, And of course, that all stems from your position inside the empire. It's not anything about me, obviously. But still, being a little lieutenant in the empire is big, right? Mm -hmm. um, in, in, you know, in the same way that I imagine some relatively junior army officer like runs an entire province in Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever, right? Because that's how these things work. And that's kind of how it was inside Facebook. And so it's really exhilarating in the sense that you can make things happen that matter to the industry very quickly with the resources of a Facebook in a way that you can't um, in a startup in which it's much more of a struggle. So that, that to me is the exciting thing. I think what, what animates a lot of people who are in companies like Facebook, at least at the time that, or in the stage that I was at Facebook, at least. 
So I, I love that you touched on Facebook and your role there. For folks in the audience, can you dive into a bit more about, you know, ads and, and retargeting itself? Because I think you do a great job in, in, in telling the stories within the book, but then you also do a dive into the technology. And that's so helpful and it's eye-opening. Believe me, when I think about, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone else in the audience audience has experienced this, but I feel like I'll have a conversation with a friend or two or family members. And then all of a sudden it's popping up on my Facebook feed or on Amazon. It's just almost like it's listening, but these systems must just have so (laughs) much. It's not listening. (laughs) It must just have so much data about us. Like, can you just talk about, you know, the advertising and the retargeting technology itself to help in, you know, inform our audience here a little bit more? Sure. I mean, I, I get into this a lot in the book. In fact, part of the goal for the book was to kind of be kind of a businessy intro into the business um, with a lot of Hunter S. Thompson narration built on top of it. And some of what's in the book is dated. I mean, the world has moved on in many ways. But at a high level, I, still, I, I think it still, it still holds up pretty well. Um, so how to sketch this out at the highest level way. So, so okay, let's take a very personal experience. Every time you go to a website or a mobile experience, open up Facebook, browse, you know, browse the internet, use some e-commerce app like Amazon or Zappos or what have you, every time you load an experience, literally every, every single time, there's kind of an auction held in your attention, right? And sometimes, sometimes it's a similar to sort of selling shares on a Wall Street ad exchange in the sense that like, you know, you load a thing, signals go out to machines all over the world saying, hey, this person showed up, obviously all anonymized, but basically it's still to the individual level. And they say, oh, what ads could you possibly show to this person? They pull thousands or hundreds of ads. There's an auction held. Um, You know, there's optimizations made around, well, is this person likely to engage with this content or not? They sort them by, by price and then they pick a winner. And this happens you know, literally hundreds of billions of times a day, right? This sort of auction and individualized quanta of human attention, right? And if there's one thing you take away from this very kind of hand-wavy discussion is that the media world has moved away from, just to take like a historical counterpoint, right? How did media used to get sold? It's, it, it's, it's still how it kind of gets sold, at least by the most ancient companies like the New York Times, right? You, if you want to run an ad in, you know, whatever, page 31A of the New York Times, there's like a rate card that says, okay, that costs $100,000 or whatever it is. Here's the format. Give us your creative. We run it for this day. You know, you, you cut us a check or wire us money and that's it. That's how the media is sold. And for a long time, the internet was actually sold that way as well, right? I mean, there's, there's this thing which every new form of media embodies a lot of the tropes and business models of the previous form of, of media until it kind of matures and discovers another way to do it. So the internet was that way for a long time. But then, again, over the course of of many years, and you know, this is this is a bigger thing than just Facebook, right? But it's because it's come to the point where they unbundle the audience from the publisher, which, by the way, is part of the reason why journalism is kind of dying, right? Because the thought that New York Times would have a unique audience that you could only address through the New York Times ad sales desk, well, that's just gone, <laughs> right? And so, one of the things that ad tech did, um, well, two things. One is it unbundled the audience. Like I go and buy this user because they have this thing in their shopping cart and I'm actually kind of indifferent as to where the hell they are. Like they don't have to be on the New York Times style section. I don't have to pay what would be a lot of money to reach them on that New York Times page if I can reach them somewhere else on the internet, right? If I have the machinery to actually target them, which in this day and age you do, right? And then of course, the other thing of course is that companies like Google and Facebook kind of upstreamed a lot of these distributors and actually control their own their own distribution, right? So the ads dollars that would typically go to even digital versions of the New York Times now go to Instagram or Facebook because 
they, they actually have their own audiences that are kind of upstream of the New York Times or Time or whatever, right? And so, anyhow, broadly, that's what's been going on, that, you've, that we've unbundled the audience from the publisher and enabled a level of individual targeting that just obviously was not technically feasible in the pre-internet age at all. Okay, so I remember during the book, as you're talking about this, you know, it, it relates to... Cheryl and everything that she was leading at the time, right? So this this group that you were basically heading up by yourself, right? Uh, as its own initiative, kind of not under most people's radar. I remember you telling like yep. you, you never saw Zuck until he walked yep. around one time because he was going for some yep. like 10,000 steps. What was it like working with Cheryl, right? And, and being part of this and leading this new aspect of ads that was not had a, didn't have a lot of attention to it, but now obviously is this huge entity. Right. Well, again, I, and to be clear, you know, this is all this, at this point, it's pretty dated now, right? Like Facebook doesn't work this way anymore, as I understand it. But yep. at the time, um, you know, it wasn't just me in the ad team who didn't see Zuck. Nobody did. <laughs> like the guy just didn't care about ads. And, um, you know, ads was this sort of necessary evil. I mean, he, you know, he said as much in his S1 and nobody believed him thinking he was naive. And it's like, no, bro, this is like actually how it works. He said, you know, we don't we don't build services to make money, we make money to build services, right? And so ads has always been this necessary thing that funds the whole endeavor, but it's not really the, the focus of the company. By the way, it's very common, as I understand it, inside Google, it's very similar. Like, AdWords pays for almost everything, but then everyone who's outside of AdWords just assume that it comes from the heavens, right? And just doesn't care about ads at all. So, in any case, that, that was the situation at the time. And then, you know, Cheryl, you know, it's worth mentioning, so Cheryl, yeah, I mean, she, everyone on the sort of sales and ops side reported through her and obviously she's super impactful as an individual because she was often sort of the go-between between the business and Zuck and so um, you know she was very conscious of the business constraints I think you know direct product impact was more some of the product leads at the time it was maybe less her but but yeah she yeah she's definitely the one who was you know again who issued that call that said you know we've got to figure something out I think her exact word I quote her in the book was like Starbucks isn't going to pay us $10 billion a year to get, you know, a million followers anymore. Back when that was a thing. Remember when, like, you used to pay for followers on Facebook? Although nobody knew what to do with those things. But in any case, Starbucks isn't going to do that anymore. You have to you have to figure out something else. And so that's, yeah, that's what kind of triggered the crisis. And, you know, that's that year, not just stuff I worked on, obviously. There's a bunch of stuff that went out. But that year is when a lot of the sort of core products that have made, you know, Facebook billions of dollars and built hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap were products that mostly shipped within like that one or two year period uh, towards the end of my time there. All right. Well, um, again, so folks in the audience, welcome to this room. We are diving into the tremendous book, Chaos Monkey, with the author himself, Antonio Garcia Martinez. Yeah. So let's actually, I was always curious about this. Talk to us about Chaos Monkey itself. Chaos Monkeys. It's such a great title. Um, what <laughs> it, was, it wasn't that? always called that. It wasn't always called that. Um, so, the, yeah, people often ask me that. So a Chaos Monkey, so anyone who's technical in the, in the audience might recognize it. So Chaos Monkey, and if you at this point, I think my Google SEO is probably so good, I've probably clobbered uh, the original meaning of the word, or maybe not, actually. In any case, it, originally, it, I think it's an open source project from, I think they open sourced it. I'm not sure. But in any case, it was a product built by Netflix, and the idea here is like picture, you know, a monkey rampaging through a data center, literally pulling on cables, knocking over boxes and just wrecking a data center. Uh, this is sort of a software version of that that goes into a data center and just starts breaking things at random. And the idea here is to do a very real world test of like, well, does, you know, 
uh, House of Cards still stream or not <laughs> when the Chaos Monkey goes nuts inside um, some some server farm somewhere. And more broadly, it's come to mean like doing very real world like semi-destructive invasive testing to, to check the robustness of systems. Why I named the book after it is because I think there's a passage in there where I kind of riff on it. The idea being that like Silicon Valley, and again, this was at the beginning of like the buildup of like tech becoming a thing. Now it's such a thing that in fact, the cool thing is to kind of have a backlash against tech. But this is when like Uber was still on the rise, Airbnb was still on the rise, right? And the thought was, well, modern startups are like chaos monkeys in society that go around and suddenly say, yo, look, by the way, we're not going to have taxis anymore. <laughs> this whole taxi thing that you hail on the street, that's, that's just gone. We're going to pull the plug on that. And there's this whole other thing or, you know, Airbnb saying, yeah, hotels, no, we're going to take spare bedrooms and turn them into hotels or whatever. And then society kind of follows along trying to make sense of the mess left behind by the chaos monkeys. Right. So that's what it means kind of metaphorically. Um, but it, you know, it, <laughs> originally the book wasn't even called that. And I had to come up with chaos monkeys. I was literally sitting with my editor in, in lower Manhattan at, um, Harper Collins. And she's like, the salespeople can't even pronounce the current title. <laughs> you have to come up with something else or they can't sell it. And somehow I recall the conversation uh, with my co-founders because, frankly, the most successful product of Agrock, the, the YC startup, was the blog that I used to read, which is how I discovered my agent. And anyway, long story, um, one, one of my old blog posts became one of the chapters in Chaos Monkeys. In any case, the blog was super viral. And every time one of my posts would hit and go number one on Hacker News, it would, like, melt all the servers. <laughs> and so the CTO suggested maybe having, like, a blog post goes viral chaos monkeys that would test the servers because obviously they were failing all the time. Anyway, I remember that conversation and that's how it ended up becoming the, the title of the book. So, you know, in an aspect, I would love to talk about the marketing of this book, right? Because the, the name of it is so unique. It's eye-catching. It's, it piques curiosity. I want to learn about it, right? So talk about how once you were writing it, you were with, with, done writing it, you were with your editors. Then what? What was your marketing kind of tactics for, for getting this out into the world and, and having it catch on and catch fire? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> that assumes that there was a grand marketing strategy. Well, I mean, there sort of was. So when you pitch a book, like there's there's something called a book proposal that's kind of like the business plan for the book, which sounds very unromantic. And it is because book publishing is very unromantic. There's no uh, tubercular poets in, in Garrett's writing poetry that then sells for millions of dollars. Not how it works. It's a product like anything else. And so as part of the book proposal, you have to come up with what's called a marketing plan which is basically how you are going to flog the book and use whatever marketing, you know, momentum you have to do it, which at the time before the book was not very much. <laughs> like, I think I had 3000 Twitter followers or something and, you know, a niche following because of like a few blog posts that went viral and whatnot, but like, that's it. Um, and so, yeah, initially it was pretty conventional. Again, this is kind of in the before times where social media hadn't totally clobbered everything. And so Harper Collins, you know, did go to bat for me. It launched on uh, whatever the morning show is with Gail King. I can't remember the name. It launched on like major network TV. There's a bunch of media hits on TV and stuff. I actually paid for some paid marketing, I think on Facebook, which is interesting. Um, word of mouth, getting into, you know, Amazon, a client. So eventually it made the, new, the, the bestseller list, which of course provides its own momentum, which by the way, it takes, it takes fewer copies to make the bestseller list than you might think. Actually, It's not as much as you think. And then of course, Amazon, I think plugged it as like book of the month in June. And then, you know, from there wired and the Atlantic all recommended, I don't know. It, it kind of assumes a life of its own. I think at some point. Um, so can we yeah. bring I'd love, so we're talking about marketing. There must have been a moment before it was out in the world 
that you had a feeling of some type of emotion, right? Were, were you, because you cover a lot of great success, a lot of struggles, a lot of, you know, inside stories in this right before it launched, how were you feeling? Were you nervous? Were you feeling terror, you know, terror, or were you really excited before the world got? Oh to no, it was terrifying. Here? Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I assumed I, well, it turned out my prophecy was eventually correct, I guess, but I assumed I would get like canceled or like ostracized from tech because of this book, because of course there's this like code of silence around the book. And there's a lot of passages in the book that are extraordinarily critical of tech in many ways, right. From comparing Facebook and all these startups, not just Facebook. I mean, picking on Facebook because I was inside it, but I don't think it's unique to Facebook. You know, the, the cultishness of the company, like the uniforms that everybody wears, the sort of wise, wondrous leader, the posters on the wall, the whole thing looks like, commun- like it looks like a beautiful gleaming version of like communist Cuba. It's this very strange, all encompassing cult that you're sort of part of. And so, you know, there's a lot of other criticisms of, and then of course, you know, the narrative persona that I assume in the book that, you know, is kind of grating and obnoxious is its own form of criticism, right? Like in some sense, I think I was very typical of a class of sort of entrepreneurs or whatever in that time in Silicon Valley. And they're kind of ruthless and semi-sociopathic pursuit of whatever this whole capitalism thing is supposed to be about, right? And so all that put together made me fear, like, what would be the impact, right? Um, You know, there were some concerns around litigation from Facebook, which never materialized, but the book went through legal reviews. I remember there was one, there was literally one printed out paper copy that was like kept locked in some cabinet somewhere, buried in the bowels of HarperCollins so that like nobody could could send like a spy to go steal it or anything. Anyhow, there's a bunch of cloak and dagger stuff when it first came out that was probably paranoid in retrospect. But I, I did worry about the impact it would have. And I don't know, it's one of these things, it's a bizarre personality quirk that's almost certainly a flaw that, I don't know, when I get sort of into my thing, I just cast all caution and all feelings of self-preservation to the wind and just kind of go for it. And it's, it's semi-suicidal in a way, but that sort of kicked in That said, you know, I was still super worried, but I was just like, well, I don't know. We'll just roll the dice. (laughs) There's a quote from Hunter S. Thompson, a faster, you know, faster, faster, faster until the thrill of speed overcomes the fear of death. And so (laughs) in those moments, my reaction, unlike most people, is not to press the brakes, but actually floor the gas even Mm. more than before. (laughs) You know, and and a quick side note for folks in the audience, you know, if you haven't clicked on Antonio's profile already, please do so. Follow him and follow him on social because, you know, recently – you did a post on Twitter where you said, like, who would you love to see me interview that could get me canceled? Right. I think it was for your uh, for yeah. your your, your uh, not your article, I was about to say, but your newsletter, which, again, I, I hope people sign up for. And, and I love that about that, that you asked that question, but you're looking to kind of push those edges. Right. And live on the edge. So I really admire that in some ways. Um, before we jump over to the kind of the entrepreneurship side that you were just mentioning a, a minute ago. I wanted to ask as well, like, were there parts of the book that you edited out, whether your, you know, HarperCollins has said, no, we're definitely not talking about that. And you don't have to mention the story per se, unless you'd yeah. like to. Um, but, you know, I'm looking at that because you share so many great stories. Yeah. What didn't make it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, the book did go through legal review. The lawyers did raise a few questions. You know, it's funny. Everyone asks, like, how did you get away with this without getting sued? You know, it, not that I recommend people like... <laughs> <laughs> running into this minefield necessarily. But, you know, NDAs and confidentiality tend to cover a lot less than you might think, actually. Um, and so it wasn't that hard to avoid that. Um, there was a lot dropped just because it would just sucked and I was a first-time book author and didn't, and just put too much in there. So I basically, so I was in, actually in Europe. So again, I assumed I would get like canceled, ostracized, whatever. So actually I moved to Europe. I have, 
I, I'm an EU national, or one of my passports is European, whatever. And so I moved to, to Barcelona and Berlin for a while, and that's where I actually wrote the beginnings of Chaos Monkey. And then I sold the book to an American publisher, obviously. I'm like, well, I guess I'm not quitting the U.S. yet, whatever. And so I came back, and I, I rented a small place on these islands northwest of Seattle where I ended up living for a while and bought a property. Um, and I basically locked myself in a tiny little cabin. I mean, it really is like a parody of itself. A tiny little cabin in the middle of the woods in some windswept island in the ass end of nowhere in northwestern United States and just like me and a laptop and a pile of IPA and a lot of anger and fear and whatever and just cranked out 170,000 words and I think about two or three months actually this total writing bender um, but of course that was enormous I mean they, they wanted this as like a summer beach read <laughs> and I gave them war and peace right? yeah. enough, it, was, it was just too much and so the editor's like what the hell no way and so we spent the next three or four months cutting down the 170,000 words to whatever it is now 80 or 90 which still backs out to like 450 pages or something and way more than they thought but less than I sort of submitted so yeah a lot was cut but I think it was mostly just for a narrative type I mean if you read the book now and it's a flawed book. Like, I myself confess, like, there's aspects of it that in retrospect I think it would have changed. The, the first half is pretty linear. It's, it's really two books in one, to be honest. Like, not that this happens, but if in a perfect literary world, this would have shipped as two books. But the first half is a fairly linear, frenetic tale about this whole startup thing, starting on Wall Street, watching Wall Street blow up, going to a shitty startup, getting sued by the company, starting a company, raising money, and then boom, acquisition, right? Mm -hmm. and, then, like, and then, like, instantly... It flips to now you're in the middle of Facebook in this large company, uh, way in over your head doing whatever. And then there, the narrative gets a little bit more confused um, just because life is confused, right? I mean, uh, one of the artifices of a book is that you impose a certain narrative, um, you know, order to a world and a life that completely lack it, right? But you, but you have to impose it. Otherwise, the reader is not going to follow you for 80,000 words. Mm -hmm. It just becomes chaos. And so, but, but that's where I think my, that my, my writerly hand got a little shaky. And, you know, people have complained that, like, well, it seems to go all over the place in the second half, which I think the book does. But I don't know. Some people like it. Some people like the fact that every chapter is, like, different. But um, in any case, there was a whole middle section that got cut out. Um, and then... Um, well, I mean, there's a few things that the editor wanted me to remove that I didn't. There's that one paragraph that got me into so much trouble that, anyhow, I wanted <laughs> that she to this day scolds me for not removing. Um, in any case, uh, so, oh, and then the other thing that was interesting is there's a bunch of translations made of it. There's, I, I forget the total number, but whatever, 20 some odd languages. And one of them is, um, uh, I, I think what they call simplified Chinese, basically mainland Chinese. And uh, the Chinese publisher wanted to cut the comparisons between capitalism and communism. My whole riff about how Facebook was like communist Cuba, they wanted nothing to do with. And so I, I did have this like moral dilemma of like, do I give in to the communists or not? Mm -hmm. And um, I think I did actually, because the book got published in China. So I think I just said, I don't know, man, whatever. I'm not going to sit there and fight with some, to be clear, like the author is not really very involved in these foreign editions. Like it gets sold by your overseas agent that I don't even know that well. And then you literally just get a contract in some funny language. And then three months later, you get five copies of the book in Korean or something you're never going to read. And that's it. Like that's about the extent of your involvement with any book. So like, it's not like I, you know, I shepherded this book to completion or anything. It was just like, here's the contract. And by the way, you've got to say yes to this thing. And so I said, yes, to this thing. I still kind of regret it slightly, but whatever. Um, you know, Anyhow, here we are. <laughs> and so, Antonio, yeah, exactly. Here we are. And it's a New York Times bestseller. Folks, go check it out on Amazon. It, I, I'm looking at over a thousand reviews right now. Do you look at the reviews, the good, the bad ones? Oh, God. 
Yeah, so, I mean, one thing I still have PTSD about, in fact, like, literally, like, I can see my heart rate increasing. Like, I don't, like, I don't go and... One thing you'll notice, like, after you've written a book, right, particularly mine, which required so much editing, I've probably read that, that book literally beginning to end, I don't know, 50, 60 times at least. You never want to see the fucking book ever again. <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't read it. I don't look at it. Unless someone asks me a question, I, I never, I don't think I even have a copy of my bookshelf. But in any case, um, so I, I don't regularly, like, go and look at the reviews now or anything. Um, but at the time, after it had come out, of course I did, because I was super scared, because, you know, it's uh, once, you know, like everything, once you get to a certain review lever, that tends to self-reinforce itself, right? And so the early reviews can kind of shape your path in a very impactful way. So I was totally terrified. I would literally, my hands would shake, and I would literally be having panic attacks every day that I'd go and check my fucking reviews. <laughs> but of course, at some point, you reach, like, a certain stability, and, like, you know, the algorithm starts discounting recent reviews versus old ones or whatever. And at this point, like, I'm stuck on, I think I'm 4.2 stars. I'm, like, I'm stuck there. It's basically not going to move, so whatever. But, yeah, no, I was totally freaked out about it for a long time. Well, you know, there's a lot of people in in the industry that I respect that have written tremendous things, uh, uh, usually on Twitter, um, and I really admire it. So, you know, I've been excited to, to read this book. I think everyone in the audience, please check it out as well. You know, so let's calm our you know, our heart beats down a little bit. I know that we can get really raced, uh, you know, jazzed about this stuff. There was a moment where you were paraphrasing Mark Andreessen, our good friend, Mark Andreessen. Uh, yeah. Here in the audience, that'd be great. Um, if anyone knows him, please ping him. Uh, but it was a really powerful line, you know, and you were talking, let me see if I can find the quote real quick, um, where he says, in the future, there will only be two types of jobs. People who tell computers what to do and people who are told by computers what to do, right? And that was a really powerful phrase that, that, that resonated with me. Um, so let's switch gears into that entrepreneurial side and, and talk about kind of the future of work and things like that. What did that paraphrase mean to you? And can you kind of, uh, you know, share more details with the audience? Sure, look, dude, you, you so stressed me out with the Amazon chatter. I'm actually pouring myself a beer to, like, self-medicate. <laughs> that's how that's how PTSD out I am. Well, Hold hopefully, take your time pouring that. Um, you know, so, and while you're doing that, you know, folks in the audience, again, thank you for joining us. My name is Adam Sokolich. Um, we're joined by the author of Chaos Monkeys, Antonio Garcia Martinez. This is a highly entertaining book where you dive into these successes, these stru- struggles. I love the way that you wrote the cover, by the way. What is it? The Obscene Fortune uh, and then at the same time, random failure or something. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't love the tagline. Actually, I was forced to come up with that for some reason. Books, there's some loss. I don't think there actually is one, but for some reason you have to have a subtitle. One thing I am proud of actually the, the cover art of like the, the monkey with the hoodie and the, I actually did come up with that. I have to say that's one thing I am proud of. I love um, it. They asked me like, nor, again, normally the author, I mean, it depends how much the publisher cares about you. Normally, like I hear they don't, but in this case, for whatever reason, they actually took my input on the cover and they actually ran with it. And so that's how we ended up with the little, the little monkey guy. <laughs> on the cover. But, um, but to answer your earlier question about the Andreessen thing, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I think the world of, of Mark and, you know, I think he's one of the more appreciate, uh, sort of commenters on technology and where it's going. And yeah, and this quote that like in the future, you know, you're either going to tell the software what to do, the software is going to tell you what to do. Um, I think that's right. And I think it's only become more and more true as time goes on, right? And um, and to be clear, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. I mean, it's weird, right? Because you think about it, automation used to be like what, you know, automation used to represent whether it was like a cashier or a calculating machine or a graphing calculator or whatever, like, the hard thing a human couldn't do, right? Like the automated step in a human workflow. And now the human 
is the thing that the computer can't do and what's fundamentally a computer pipeline, right? So, for example, if you look at all these delivery companies or Uber, right, like what's the one thing that cannot be just automated out of existence is like physically getting the food from place A to place B inside a busy city because we don't have full vehicular autonomy yet, right? That's it. So the human is standing in for the computer, not the other way around. And so, I mean, that's what it, that's what the, that's what it means, right? And that's so much more broadly, right, like, I mean, look, I, you know, I hate to totally fucking fanboy, but whatever. I, I, my, one of my recent posts was about Tesla. I, I bought a Tesla 3. I'm not really a Tesla sort of guy. I didn't think I was, but for this Apple job, I'm like, okay, I'm going to be like a little commuting worker bee on the 280 like everybody else. So might as well get like a cozy commute car that where like autopilot maybe, maybe works. So you buy this car. And for those who don't have or don't own a Tesla, I mean, part of the genius of Elon is that he took, you know, what historically is like a mechanical contraption, right? This mechanical thing with a little bit of electronics and he turns it basically into an iPhone, right? It's like the same hardware, like all the different models and stuff have very shared hardware across years, for example. It's the software that updates. Like my car gets a software update and suddenly it runs better because it's basically a software product. In the same way that like, again, like we take it so for granted, we don't see the the craziness of it, but the fact that like your Mac auto updates and suddenly it runs better, like things didn't work that way (laughs) 10 years ago, right? Most things you bought a thing and the thing did what it did and that's it and if you wanted a better version of the thing you bought a different thing right um but you know the fact that software is taking over even the most mechanical things in the world which are like cars i think again is another proof point of of that that statement from mark yep and i think that's one of, of several things that entrepreneurs can pull out of this is to start thinking you know along those lines and learn from people or listen to people like mark and and of course see what what elon's doing what are some of the other highlights, right? And, and I may know what they are, but, you know, that you want to share with the audience for entrepreneurs, the lessons that they can learn as you wrote this story and share your experiences. What are some of them that stand out that really resonate with you or that you've gotten feedback from, from people in the audience that have read it before, um, that you'd love to share with this audience uh, to, to learn from and build upon? Oh my God. I'm like, the, I'm like the worst guy to ask that question. <laughs> I'm kind of like, um, you know, St. Augustine um, said or, or lived his life in such a way that, like, you know, the best way to get to heaven is to know the route to hell and avoid it, right? So I would say read Chaos Monkeys and then do the opposite of everything I did. That's what I would say. <laughs> um, so, uh, but, um, there was a line, Antonio, that, that resonated with me, you know, lessons if you want to be a startup entrepreneur, for instance, uh, get used to negotiating from the position oh, yeah. of weakness, right? That stood out to me. So can you can you talk more about that? Oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, as a startup, I mean, there's various metaphors that are used for it. Some of them are cliche and wrong. Some of them are cliche and right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, as a startup, you're always fighting for a position of weakness, right? Uh, you you are a little nothing. You're a gnat <laughs> in a sea of, you know, massive animals in this jungle, which there really isn't much in the way of rules. Like, markets are only thinly regulated. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very weird position. Again, there's various metaphors you can use, and some of them sound cheesy, but they're but they're accurate, right? Like, you really are this weird little warrior band in the forest going up against, like, the U.S. military and hoping that somehow you're going to turn it around and have an upset victory and march into the Capitol one day. Um, but, you know, you're kind of drawing at long odds. And, you know, I, I think what... It's a lot of military metaphors you can make here, but, you know, there's definitely an esprit de corps that kind of hits inside the startup and that, you know, what binds you together is the fact that you're kind of stuck in this shit together. And um, at some point, that kind of matters more and even the theoretical mission that you've got of, you know, whatever, creating this wonderful new product that's going to change the world or so you think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, yeah, one of the most important things is, you know, I, I, again, I think for anyone who's in Silicon Valley, this is like 
old hat advice, but you know, who, who, you know, the team matters a lot more than the idea um, or the direction or the VCs or anything. Right. And so finding the correct team members to actually form it. Like, like now when I look at a company, like I don't even look at the bullshit on their website. I literally just look like, okay, who's behind this? (laughs) Who's senior management and who backed them? That's it. It, From, you know, tell me a, B and C from that. I can already tell the trajectory this company's headed on. The rest is almost immaterial. Um, so the that in their jobs page, by the way, that's the secret look into a company's roadmap. Look who they're hiring because that's the roadmap over the next year. Yes. But, um, yeah, well, yeah. If anyone wants to look at the clubhouse uh, job board, they are hiring at the moment, but I'd be curious how you would pick that, you know, look into that as well. Um, maybe we won't touch too much on that topic right now, but, um, you know, so I, I want to keep going on what we were just talking about in regards to entrepreneurship just a little bit. But at the same time, the book is focused on Silicon Valley, right? Since then, you know, in a way, do you see a lot of these stories beyond Silicon Valley, of course? And as you think of the entrepreneurs in the audience, you know, who are interested or thinking, I have to go to Silicon Valley, would you recommend that, whether they're creating a startup there or can it be done anywhere in this global world, especially now? Oh, you mean the Bay Area versus rest of the world thing? Yeah. You know, I I find myself not having super strong opinions about, I mean, also COVID changed so much and I haven't really, like, I mean, I wasn't a startup during COVID, but I haven't done the entrepreneur thing like under COVID, although I have lots of friends who have. Um, I I don't, okay, let me me give you my pre-COVID opinion and then maybe mention how the opinion changed through COVID. So so pre-COVID, I would definitely have said the Bay Area definitely has a certain magic to it. And there's other startup ecosystems, New York, Tel Aviv, uh, Stockholm, London, et cetera. But I think it's, um, there's something special in Silicon Valley. And again, a lot of these delusions are ridiculous, but they enable the ecosystem that are hard to recreate elsewhere. Like, like I said, I, I actually started the book assuming I'd have to go and like reboot my life in Europe. And so like I hung out in the startup scene in Barcelona, in Berlin, uh, in Paris, just a tiny little bit. And, you know, I, it was, and there's a lot of great stuff going on there and I'm sure those ecosystems will mature, but it definitely felt like the minor leagues compared to San Francisco's like, eh, this is like, they use a lot of the same language. I mean, it almost felt like these cargo cults in the South Pacific, where they're like, I don't know if you're familiar with these. That's where cargo cult programming, the term comes from. It's like, there's actually cults that sprung up around the Air Force, like bombers and, and crews that showed up in World War II. And the locals, right, one day, all these shiny planes came out of the sky and handed them a bunch of free stuff. And they've built like this cult around it. And so they, they redo the things that brought the planes from the sky, or they thought brought the planes from the sky. And it's become this weird sort of, messianic sec anyway weird side note that's kind of what it felt like europe was doing and that it was like invoking all the tropes incubators co-working agile this agile that but it's like you know we're, we're the big shiny planes <laughs> we're the googles and facebooks mm-hmm. right they they sort of it's not true that they don't exist there are some large companies there, but obviously it's i think it's a lot harder than it is in the u.s of course now with covid a those those startup ecosystems i'm sure are going to mature and get bigger and whatnot two i think covid does change things again i you know in the, in the startup I was in, this company called Branch Metrics, which is a big mobile attribution company, um, you know, if anything, productivity went up or certainly stayed the same under COVID. So it was like one of the shocks was that, like, work from home didn't really impact that much. Like, my team that I was responsible for chugged along as it did before, if not faster. And so, and, like, people started drifting away. One team member who's Iranian, like, worked from Tehran and kept these crazy hours <laughs> just to work with us. But it was like, well, I don't know. It kind of it was fine, right? And so to the extent that work from home becomes a thing, and I think it probably will be, um, then, yeah, maybe you don't need to start it. But, I, you know, 
the weird thing is the is the fundraising side of things, right? That's where the, the, the rubber really hits the road, right? And to the extent that some VCs still insist on seeing you face-to-face, I don't know. I have a friend of mine who just raised uh, <laughs> funny, what's now called a seed round, which is actually like single-digit millions, which would have been like a healthy Series A when, you know, in my in my YC days. In any case, um, she managed to raise a bunch of money, and, um, you know, she I think she had almost no in-person meetings. And so, you know, maybe it doesn't matter. I mean, there are issues of, like, tax and corporate regime. Like, I think you probably need to have a Delaware C corporation as, like, the encapsulating vessel. Um, and if you were in some, you know, random small country, I think it would be difficult to raise money in the, you know, incorporate in those companies. But leaving that aside, which I don't think is what you're asking about. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what the answer is. Like, I've stuck around San Francisco for the most part. Um, but the city definitely does feel a little hollowed out. And I definitely know lots of founders and people who have the means or the ability to leave who have left. And I don't, I'm not so sure they're coming back. Ah, so, and I know you, you mentioned YC before, and I want to get to that in just a few minutes and Paul Graham, a tremendous guy, but you know, I'm also getting pinged in the back channels and one person's asking. And um, so Julie, thanks for sending this out. You know, you've written a, a tremendous guide for everything kind of going on in regards to Silicon Valley. So what will, you know, are you expecting a fallout? What will that be like? If so, if remote hits, you know, and people kind of like you move to be on a sailboat and things like that. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, it's weird. Like again, like I said, in the sort of mid-stage startup I was in, it didn't really, it didn't really impact that much. I think there are situations where the work-from-home thing is probably going to prove to be suboptimal. In in larger companies in which, um, you know, you're taking a junior person, right, and you're kind of like acculturating them to whatever the Facebook or the Google or the whatever way of doing things, and there is a very particular way of doing things, which there are with some companies. There certainly wasn't Facebook, right? I think acculturating them to that without physical presence will be hard, right? Because you just, you know, humans are still physical beings and there's still the look and feel, there's the swag, there's the the vibe, there's the in-person all hands, there's just all the very tactile, very analog things that make up the human experience that don't exist. And, you know, and, you know, people try to weakly replicate it. Like we had events and social hours and all this stuff via Zoom when I was a branch, but... You know, eh, I, I don't think it wouldn't be as impactful as my Facebook onboarding, which really was like Marine boot camp or whatever, you know, corporate version of it, obviously. But it was kind of like that. It really was this baptism of fire in the Facebook ecosystem. And I think it would be very difficult to replicate that remotely. It just wouldn't. Um, it just wouldn't be possible. Okay. Um, also, in a world in which you know, I think part of the success of COVID is that every company was forced to go remote or just cease operations, right? Like everyone had to do it. And as I think as we come out of it and you have booster shots and you have mRNA vaccines that adapt to variants and basically as, a, as the COVID situation starts getting kind of under control, you're going to have some companies that will insist on being in the office, right? And then, then it's weird, right? Because then you're going to have some employees who are there getting FaceTime with management or with other members of the team. You have those who aren't. And I think unless you have a very disciplined or very mature sort of professional cohort, you're going you're gonna to see differences in terms of bonding, performance reviews, collaboration, whatever, which is unfortunate because in some sense, like, it should be possible to just produce, right, without that personal look and feel. Mm-hmm. But I think it's in practice hard. And then also, of course, here I am, someone speaking from the product and engineering point of view, which tends to be super code focused. But I, for, you know, just from from 
what came out of Apple and what came out of Branch when I was there under COVID, right? Like, there's a lot of feedback from people who maybe just don't like staring at screens all day <laughs> that, you know, and who expect personal, con- you know, contact, whether it be sales, ops, whatever, that being out of the office was like a major downer for just for their professional morale and stuff. And I can see that because those are, those are worlds where I think there's a lot more of a personal element to, to the work. And there I could definitely see how, yeah, the Zoom calls are just not going to, are not going to cut it. So, <laughs> so then um, that- I, I don't know. But then, then the hybrid, it seems like everyone says, well, the hybrid model would be perfect. Or like if I could design my own work style, if I was like in a regular nine to five job again, I guess, yeah, it would be three or four days work from home and then one or two days, you know, eating the commute and going to work. That would be ideal. But then, you know, you have to engineer it such that you overlap with your team on that one or two days. People will have different day preferences. I don't know. Not, not that we want to get into the weeds here. There's a PM term for you. But, you know, I think it would be difficult to really engineer the hybrid side of things and get the best of both worlds. But I, I don't know. We'll see. Real quick, yes or no, would you recommend people go live on a boat? No, absolutely not. Terrible idea. Don't do it. Got it. Thank um, you. <laughs> unless, unless you absolutely love boats and just cannot imagine living without one. And you either have a mountain of money so you can pay other people to, to work on the boat for you or you yourself are willing to get, you know, grease under your fingernails and varnish and actually maintain a complicated device that's in the most destructive and oxidative environment ever in the world, which is sitting on a saltwater bath. So unless you're willing to do that, I would definitely argue against it. All right. So we're talking about, you know, entrepreneurship, the startup life, of course, Silicon Valley and how the world can be shifting to remote work, things like that. You know, for the other startups and entrepreneurs in the audience right now who are possibly looking for seed money funding, you know, of course, you uh, have experience of YC, right? Y Combinator for folks in the audience as an accelerator um, and, you know, a relationship with PG, Paul Graham. Tell us more about that. I know that's a very open-ended question, but what what's your thoughts and, gui- and guidance and experience with YC? Well, I would definitely recommend YC to anyone who's interested in it. I mean, it's changed a lot since I was there. I mean, I <laughs> I think the number of companies in my batch was 35, and in the most recent demo day, which was a couple weekends ago, um, it was remote, but I think it, it was literally 10x the size. It was 300 some odd companies. And so, you know, YC has gone from what was almost like it was almost like one of these Greek schools of philosophy you read about, like the school of Pythagoras or Socrates or something, in which there was like this circle of disciples around the guru called PG, and then all this interesting, funky stuff would come out of it. It went from that, um, and I think you know, in a very willful way, like this is part of the plan, into this obviously scaled up thing with multiple layers of hierarchy and specialization, and this whole, you know. White Combinator was named after this, you know, it was a function that creates other functions. It's become a company that creates other companies, effectively. But I would still recommend it. I think it's still, I mean, I won't get into the whole deep dive. I think it it offers, I think, different things for different people in different companies and different stages. But broadly, I'm super supportive. And in general, I think, you know, the real proof point is that so many, you know, one-time YC founders, people who potentially made, like, real money and a network and, like, don't necessarily need help anymore – from the fundraising perspective, go and do it a second time. There's a huge number of like two-time YC founders. And so I would take that as like a collective vote that, yeah, YC is something that can definitely accelerate things. All right. Tremendous. Well, hey, Antonio, I know I promised you 60 minutes, right? So we're just going to do some last real quick questions. But, um, you know, this is a there's so much insights for folks. I mean, we can't cover it all right now. And I highly suggest everyone go check out the book if you can. I'm just I listen to it on Audible. I love Audible. Um, So, you know, Antonio, you, you know, you wrote this book. It's gone bananas. 
pardon the pun to the chaos monkey, but um, you've also probably gone through a lot of tremendous struggles and successes since then. We don't need to dive into that. Folks can probably find some stuff if they Google it. But if you were to write a new book, another book, if you will, A, is that something that you'd be open to? And B, what would you want to write about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I actually paused the second book project, um, which is when I went back to Branch. So I left a writerly life after Chaos Monkeys to go back to be a, you know, a, a real tech Chaos Monkey. Um, and so, I, you know, no, yeah, I would definitely do a second book. No way I would do a memoir. No memoir. There's no, nobody's life is interesting enough for two autobiographies. No way. <laughs> it's impossible. And so um, it would be something completely outside of myself. But we'll see. I mean, you know, one question I have is like, is the book as a format here, this is like, you know, after the third bong hit level question, right? But, you know, is a book as a medium going to exist? Is that like an impactful way to actually do anything anymore? <laughs> like, can anyone read anymore after where brains have been fried on 280 characters on Twitter? I'm not so sure, actually. I mean, I wonder if, like, my, my deep, dark conspiracy with my Substack, which the Substack founders know about, is that I would actually serialize book two on, on the Substack, right, as a way to kind of test it out in kind of an alpha version, sort of beta, I guess, version, um, and see what it's like. And, you know, to be honest, that might be more impactful. I mean, you know, who knows? You could package that up into a book and sell it, you know, as a legacy thing. Mm-hmm. But that's not really the main way that complicated ideas see the light of day anymore. I'm not sure. I, I could go two ways about it. Well, I think um, but yeah, yeah. you touched Sorry, on two interesting points, right? You asked the question, right? Is the book as a medium, uh, you know, potentially going to exist in the future? I think that's huge. We could have a whole clubhouse room on that and maybe we yeah. will. Um, but, you know, as a side note, I work with the editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. And for the past year, he's been writing a book. Um, it actually just it went into the editor two weeks ago. Um, but I was there throughout the whole process. And as you kind of alluded to, he chopped it up. He was writing article, article, you know, newsletter, yeah. newsletter. And I didn't realize it. But by the time I was reading the first edit of the book, I'm like, it's, it's a it's a collection of all these things, right? But it was beautifully mapped together in a way. Um, so when you talk about Substack, I think that's just, it's interesting how you, how you could go about doing that with all the amazing topics. I mean, you cover so many things. It's kind of mind boggling, Antonio, all the things that you've done, but all the things that you're, that you're doing right now as well. So I give you a lot of credit for all that tremendous work you're doing. Um, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody entrepreneur would do that. I mean, you know, Dickens actually serialized all his works, all, all the, well, not about all, but a lot of uh, Dickens' novels. Like, I think serial, you know, it's funny that, <laughs> you know, the trope of like the, the anti-tech thing of like, oh, you know, bloody blah, you invented bloody blah, where bloody blah is some like old thing. And it's kind of a dig on tech reinventing something. Uh, but it's sort of true, right? Like, it, you know, Substack, and I, I did a piece on Wired about this, that like the new model for journalism, quote unquote, actually resembles sort of the 18th and 19th century model of journalism, which is not this sort of like mass market advertiser-supported thing that we're used to for the past 50, 60 years, but something much more like the Substack model in which you've got very opinionated, charismatic voices like Matt Taibbi or Andrew Sullivan or Matt Iglesias or whatever who are effectively pamphleteers. And I don't, that's often used in a derogatory term, and I don't mean that at all. I just, you know, Thomas Paine was a was a pamphleteer, right? Mm-hmm. A very impactful pamphleteer. I mean, ben, Benjamin Franklin was a was a pamphleteer, right? Um, and so I think we're going back to this old model of journalism that was very personality and opinion driven, and was very much in the fray 
on a daily basis. Like I have to joke, like the founding fathers were around today. They'd all be, they'd all have a non-account and be shit posters on Twitter. Like every last one of them. That's exactly exactly what they were. Ben Franklin wrote under 20 pseudonyms. I mean, Alexander Hamilton got shot by Aaron Burr over an anonymous piece that Hamilton had written um, and punching the, the honor of Aaron Burr, which is why he got shot. So yeah, I mean, this is, this is how things used to be, right? In many ways, what we're seeing now is just how it used to be. Um, On the other hand, of course, things used to be a lot more violent, right? I mean, the sitting vice president shot the former secretary of the treasury and just went back to work as if nothing had happened. (laughs) Can you imagine that happening now? (laughs) Not to get too historical here. It sounds like. All right, Antonio, two rapid fire questions and we're going to wrap it up. Number one, who are you following or reading at the moment? Who are you paying attention to? You know, it's weird. So this Substack thing is like taking over my life, which basically means you have to become this one man media empire. And so I've got all these interviews like lined up. And so. What, and so it's literally, I'm just talking my own book to use Wall Street speak. These are like the people that I come out and interview for pull requests. So um, Neil Ferguson, who's a noted historian, has a new book out called Doom about imagining the apocalypse that uh, I think was out recently. I'm actually interviewing him next week. Um, I've got this book by um, Catherine Page Harden. There was a story in The New Yorker about uh, this geneticist at UT Austin, who wrote a book about the impact of genetics and public policy and uh, caused kind of a stir. I got a preprint copy of her book, and I'm reading that, and it's very interesting. Um, also, Roth, uh, Ross uh, Duhat, I'm probably mispronouncing that, the columnist of the New York Times, he has a new book as well about his struggles with chronic disease, and I'm interviewing him next week, and I'm reading his book. So, um, yeah, those are some of the books that I'm, that I'm reading now. And you're turning these in interviews into a Substack, or are they also like recorded in, uh, in audio? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I'm, you know, I'm still, <laughs> Substack, you know, the pull request, which is the name of my Substack, the pull request.com, um, is a, obviously a, a work in progress. But one of the things that I sort of consistently do is talk to people that I find interesting who are willing to talk to me and then engage in like an hour or two rap session that I then transcribe into a Q and a, um, and you know, you can just read it. I mean, so I've been thinking about maybe posting them as podcasts. I'm not sure, but in any case, yeah, these are all for the pull request and it appears as its own sort of long Q and a, well, what do you know? It's almost like I wanted to talk with someone interesting and that uh-huh. you gave me an hour yes. of your time for a Q and a. So thank you so much, Antonio. I mean, this has been tremendous as we, you know, I know we bounced around, but there's so much going on with inside your book of, of chaos monkeys. Again, everyone in the audience, I highly suggest you go check it out either on audible or go buy a copy of it. Heck, actually it, whoever, if, if five people, you know, message me right now. I will buy you a copy of the oh book. Oh my God. I like Thank it that much. So, That's you know, great. again, if you're in the audience, go ahead, send me a message or on Twitter as well. Um, I'll love to, uh, to kind of spread the, those vibes out there. And, uh, you know, Antonio, thank you. I know people, you mentioned it. You actually answered my other question. Where can people find you? So it's pullrequest.com. Is that right? And Substack? The, the pull request. Pull request turns out is actually a YC software startup. <laughs> I have to use the article. So it's the pull request or just go to my Twitter, Antonio at Antonio GM. And it's all there too. Good. Well, I'm excited to hear more about those interviews that you do, whether you do them live on Clubhouse or you turn it into a podcast. And at the same time, I'm excited for what you're doing with Substack and everything else. So I really want to thank you so much, Antonio, for your time today. No, thanks, Adam. This has been fun. Thanks. Great. And thank you, everyone in the audience. Again, this is part of an author series that I'm doing. Uh, I'm gracious. I'm so happy to have Antonio to here today. And next wow. Next week, I have another great author. I'll be announcing that soon. So I hope you guys come back and I thank you all once again. I hope you have a great day, great morning, great evening, wherever you may be. Take care. Bye. 
This is the best podcast. B-E-S-T stands for business, entrepreneurship, startups, and technology. I'm your host, Adam Soklich, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon.